your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Philip Magnus. Philip is a policy historian and academic program director at the Institute for Humane Studies. Phil, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Hi, Don. Thanks for having me. Now, you really you recently published a paper with uh, economist Robert Murphy called Challenging the Empirical Contribution of Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. For people unfamiliar, can you just say a few words about um, who Piketty is and what he's claiming in his book? Yeah, so uh, Thomas Piketty is a French economist, and uh, he actually comes uh, very much from the mainstream of the economic discipline, uh, but he's been challenging uh, quite a bit of uh, what we can uh, consider uh, mainstream economic history. So he wrote this book um, that was published, uh, I guess it came out, the English version of it came out in the spring, and it's a 700-page tome that uses historical uh, narratives, data, and policy prescriptions to basically argue for a uh, uniform worldwide wealth tax. And the premise behind this wealth tax is that inequality is on the rise. Uh, and he goes through various different metrics of inequality. Uh, he attributes this to what he calls innate characteristics or laws of capitalism. And uh, the, the, the whole premise is that the, these laws will continue to play out over time such that uh, capital owners uh, of society uh, will essentially become a rentier class. They'll, uh, they'll continue to accumulate uh, wealth almost as a, uh, a natural iterative uh, process of capitalism, which will cause this inequality expansion to continue um, upward uh, for the foreseeable future. Now, a lot of people have criticized the theory um, of his book, but most commentators, even those very critical of it, even many on the right, have right. almost fawned over the data that he bases his claims on. Can you just give us a flavor of how he uses the data to support his theory? Yeah, so uh, it is, as I mentioned, part uh, part of it's a historical work. Um, he tries to uh, assemble a data set uh, to basically demonstrate that these inequality trends are happening and that they play out according to this very specific narrative. So his overarching narrative is that uh, you know inequality was high at the end of the Gilded Age, the turn of the of the, the 20th century, uh, really up until the eve of World War One. Uh, then he, he goes through a series of arguments that says that the effects, the cumulative effect of World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two, and then most specifically of all, a um, the introduction of a, a confiscatory progressive income tax at the mid 20th century. Uh, had the effect of basically knocking down the capital owners, knocking down the capital stock by mid-century uh, towards a, a more egalitarian uh, distribution of wealth in society. And then uh, the tail end of that is he says that uh, basically the reversal of these income tax policies, and we think of these as like the uh, the confiscatory rates that were enacted by FDR in the 30s uh, onward, he basically says the reversal of these policies from around 1980 to the present day has resulted in a uh, similar simultaneous reversal in the trend, so inequality is back on the rise again. And he brings data to bear to uh, supposedly tell the story. So it's a, a variety of economic indicators, um, historical data 
points that supposedly trace across the 20th century and prove that there's this giant U-shape in inequality that takes place, or a giant U-shape in the uh, the capital stock. So you start very high um, in the Belle Epoque, the late Gilded Age. Uh, you have a decimation of the capital stock, a reduction in inequality at mid-century, and then it's back on the rise again, according to his narrative. Yeah, so I guess we can separate out two different issues. One is, if those trends were true, does it support his thesis? And I think let's set that to the side, because what your paper is really focused on is a question that uh, relatively few people, I think, have really dug into. And that's, is is just the data that's used to support this theory accurate? And so I want to go through some of the claims you make, and I want to say at the outset to people, a lot of these issues are very hard to talk about without grass or looking at the numbers. Um, And so we apologize in advance if any of this is tricky, but I'm going to link to the paper in the show notes. But I do think there's definitely some points that we can make, and I want to start with a relatively simple one, as you do. And um, let me just read a quote. I think this is from... So he says, the Great Depression of the 1930s struck the United States with extreme force, and many people blame the economic and financial elites for having enriched themselves while leading the country to ruin. Roosevelt came to power in 1933 with the crisis, when the crisis was already three years old, and one quarter of the country was unemployed. He immediately decided on a sharp increase in the top income tax rate, which had been decreased to 25% in the late 1920s. And again, under Hoover's disastrous presidency, the top rate rose to 63% in 1933 and to 79% in 1937. So this is a simple historic narrative, probably similar to what a lot of us have heard. Um, What do you say to that? Well, the problem is the uh, entire narrative he gives there is false, I mean factually false. And specifically, he's attributing all these tax hikes, uh, which he approves of, he, he likes because uh, they fit with his thesis. He's attributing them to this redistributionist uh, uh, policy of FDR to uh, respond to the Great Depression, which in part uh, Piketty blames on inequality, and, and he blames on structural problems with the financial elites, as the quote indicates. Uh, what we really uh, know that happened, though, if we if we look to the history of uh, the federal income tax in the United States, States, the tax hike at the outset of uh, Piketty's quote here, this this tax hike where uh, the rates are raised from 25 to 63 percent, that was actually pushed through by Herbert Hoover, the person he describes as a uh, having a disastrous presidency. And not only did Hoover push this tax hike through, he did it for very different motives than what uh, Piketty ascribes here. had very little to do with uh, redistribution or correcting the inequality that was becoming evident in the Depression. Rather, Hoover was trying to balance the federal budget when he was facing a massive, at that point, unprecedented deficit crisis. So I want to take one more kind of small historic example. And this one, we have to fast forward a little bit. Yeah. Um, But here's uh, quoting Piketty again. From 1980 to 1990, under the presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, the federal minimum wage remained stuck at 335, which led to a significant decrease in purchasing power when inflation is factored in. It then rose to 525 under Bill Clinton in the 1990s and was frozen at that level under George W. Bush before being increased several times by Barack Obama after 2008. So the basic sense that we get is that the Republicans have been exacerbating inequality by holding down the minimum wage, and then the Democrats have been 
helping the poor by raising it. Uh, accurate? Not accurate? Not accurate at all. Uh, again, this is an oddity for an economist. Uh, he apparently likes the minimum wage. Uh, we know that uh, demand slopes downward, uh, so that has some problems with that. Uh, but nonetheless, let's give it to him. Let's assume that uh, uh, the minimum wage is a mechanism to address inequality, which I think Piketty would agree with that claim. If we look at his history here, he is again attributing minimum wage hikes to the Democratic presidents, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, uh, while claiming that the Republicans, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush first, and then at a later period, George W. Bush held it down. If we look at the history, it's not at all uh, in sync with what Piketty's claiming. Rather, we have two uh, minimum wage hikes that occurred under the George H.W. Bush presidency before Bill Clinton took office. Um, he also gets the numbers wrong for Bill Clinton. He's off by uh, 10 cents in one of the hikes he attributes. And then the uh, the, the second hike where he airs is uh, the 2007 uh, raise of the minimum wage that George W. Bush put through. And this was actually a bill that, that set into motion uh, three subsequent minimum wage hikes that were all uh, the product of uh, Bush's presidency. Uh, Piketty turns around and, and credits those to Barack Obama. Okay, so you know, what's the big deal? Look, we all uh, have published yeah. things with heirs. Um, wh what's the significance of these sorts of heirs? Yeah, so these are, these are minor uh, historical factual flaws. That uh, and there are several other instances of these that fall throughout the book. Uh, we had we found another case where he uh, misattributed uh, Herbert Hoover's motives uh, uh, in interpreting some advice he had gotten from his secretary of the treasury uh, in the late 1920s. Uh, these are minor factual issues. Uh, the reason we bring them to bear in the paper is they illustrate uh, two things. The first is a pervasive unfamiliarity that Piketty exhibits of U.S. economic history. Uh, and the second is he makes quite a few claims where he asks his reader to trust his history is accurate, uh, and it's not accurate at all. Now, if you take some of the same observations and you start delving into uh, the more complex charts, uh, the more uh, uh, complex uh, mathematical and empirical exercises he um, asks basically his reader to trust him on, uh, it becomes a similar issue because we find that the same type of errors are pervasive in some of those charts, and they lead to uh, more significant, more pronounced uh, problems with his thesis. Yeah, so that's really the heart of your papers, digging into these errors. Now, um, I'm not going to assume that I know which ones are the easiest for you to talk about. Mm -hmm. So why don't you give us kind of an overview of some of those more important um, errors that you find and problems that you find so we can get a flavor of what's going on in Piketty's work. Yeah, uh, so probably the easiest example to turn to is his chart for U.S. wealth inequality. And this is a really interesting chart. Uh, it's cited widely in the book, uh, and a lot of the public commentary focused on it as well. Um, if you actually pull up the figure uh, this is figure 10.5 in Piketty's book. It's also addressed uh, at length in our paper. And basically what it shows is the pattern of wealth ownership in the United States over the course of the 20th century. Uh, so he, t he takes the wealth distribution for the top 1% and the top 10%, and he tries to map them out across the 20th century. He gets a very specific shape in his chart. It's that U that I described. Uh, we start at the end of the Gilded Age in 1910 with very high levels of inequality. Uh, for example, he shows that the uh, the top 10% own 80% of the wealth in 1910. 
then he shows this rapid uh, decline that takes place across the mid-century. So you kind of bottom out in the 1970s or so when things have equalized uh, significantly from where they were. Again, he attributes this to high progressive taxation and cites that taxation as a success in bringing this about. Uh, then the trend reverses. So uh, from 1980 up until the present day, inequality is said to be on the rise and approaching, uh, rapidly approaching where it was at the end of the Gilded Age. And this, of course, is a bad thing. This is what he uses to, to make the argument for why we need a, um, a new redistributive uh, tax to be imposed. So um, we started poking around in some of the data behind how he constructs this chart, and it turned out to be very problematic on uh, multiple levels. I called this chart in Piketty, his figure 10.5, the Frankenstein chart, because it's assembled from bits and pieces of uh, cherry-picked data from about five or six different studies um, that are attempts to measure wealth inequality in the U.S. And the problem is these studies are in uh, somewhat of a disagreement with each other in methodology. Uh, they have divergent results. They have various ambiguous trend lines when they're taken alone. Uh, but Piketty goes through and he selects the data points that conform to the U that he wants to show and discards the rest. Uh, so to give you an example, there's a century-long series that's based on um, estimates from U.S. estate taxation of uh, wealth in the United States. And it's a very well-regarded series, uh, covers from uh, – right after uh, the onset of World War One, up until 2004 when the study was published. And they show high inequality at the beginning of the century, but a precipitous decline until around the 1970s. And then, contrary to what Piketty's showing, the trend line stabilizes. It flattens out. It shows that there's been no substantial movement in either direction um, for wealth inequality trends since about 1980. So that's a problem if you're using that as your source data and uh, you're, you're compiling a, an overall graph out of it, but uh, it doesn't show the trend line that you want to show. So what does Piketty do? Uh, when he gets to about 1980, he swaps out uh, two different other studies that do show the trend line that uh, he wants to illustrate. Well, and the does, cumulative effect – Let me effect. stop you real, oh, real quick. So sure. he, he substitutes these other ones. How does he explain why he does that? Well, he uh, is very opaque in his annotation about this. He, uh, he says that uh, he's switching from estate tax data to these two other studies. They're based on survey data. It's done by the Federal Reserve. Um, it's interesting because uh, he does the exact opposite or makes the exact opposite when he's trying to measure the same trend in the U.K. Uh, so in the U.K., he says that estate taxes are better than surveys. They're more reliable. Therefore, we should use estate taxes. In the United States, he seems to be doing the opposite. He wants to swap from estate taxes to surveys as we get to, to more recent periods in history. Um, there's no real clearly articulated method on why he's doing this. Uh, rather, it, it seems to be the product of uh, simply cherry-picking the data points that try to show this trend that's not at all evident if you look at the raw data. Um, so I guess to give you another um, example of how this plays out, I took uh, uh, Piketty's core spreadsheets, his chart, where uh, he constructed all these series together in the same uh, uh, trend line and kind of dissected it and went back to his source material. And I changed some of the discretionary choices that he, he had made. So I swapped out uh, uh, data points that he had neglected for data points that he had included. And I was able to use the exact same sources, the exact same method 
methodology and construct, so to speak, a uh, my own cherry pick graph that showed the exact opposite trend. Uh, so I could get uh, inequality to actually decline if I chose numbers that Piketty intentionally omitted. Um, in other words, it's just picking individual numbers that fit the story he wants to tell. Yeah, I think you have that in a blog post, which we'll link to. Mm-hmm. I, found, I found that very striking because it's basically following his exact methodology but making your own arbitrary choices and getting the exact different results. And what I found what I found galling about all this is, you know, I've read Piketty's book, and for a casual reader who's not going to the source data, it's none yeah. of this is presented as these are, you know, complex things that I've made a bunch of optional choices. It's he acknowledges in various ways, you know, the data right, aren't right. perfect, but he doesn't tell you the extent to which it's been massaged and the product of choice on his part. Right, right. And even on top of that, uh, if you do go to the data, the annotation is very opaque. Yeah, I so looked at a it lot myself. of credit. I looked at yeah, it myself, yeah. <laughs> and I, I couldn't understand uh, where things were coming from and how they were being used. Right, right. And he, I'm sure he has certain justifications that he can make for some of the decisions. Um, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt on some of that. But um, part of the scientific method, if you're going to do a construction like this, it needs to be replicable. It needs to be clear. Uh, the reader uh, who is interested should be able to figure out exactly what you're doing and why. And you can't do that in Piketty. Now, there's one other uh, example that I definitely want to talk about because I, I found this really fascinating. So he's yeah. trying to lay down economic laws of capitalism. And yet right. you point out that he uses data from communist countries in a very yeah. peculiar way. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah, so this is a uh, the second chart that we really focus in on. Um, this is Piketty's figure 12.4. And anyone who's probably read some of the news about the book, they've seen this quote, this uh, formula he uses, the R is greater than G formula. And the premise of that formula is that ret- the, the return on capital will outpace uh, basically income growth. Uh, so this is the notion of why a rentier society emerges. It's the capital owners that are basically uh, living large off of uh, their assets, um, outpacing uh, the workers, outpacing income uh, returns. And he predicts this is going to take place over time. So one of the implications of this is that the uh, the capital stock of a country or really the world uh, will have heavy determinative um, input on how that formula plays out. So he attempts to come up with empirics behind it. He attempts to measure the global capital stock across the 20th century. Um, so he does this by taking a ratio of uh, of capital to uh, national income, national income uh, aggregated for the world. So uh, um, it's um, a global output that he puts together. Now, he does several strange things when he's assembling this chart, this figure 12.4, because, again, it shows the U-shape. It shows high levels of uh, of a capital stock at the beginning of the century, bottoms out at mid-century when there's this equalization taking place, and then we're returning back to the Gilded Age uh, toward the end of the 20th century uh, by a resumption of growth in the capital stock. Um, It's a very complex chart that's based on a lot of data assumptions, but when he starts to assemble it, he immediately encounters a problem, and that is we don't have good uh, capital stock data for most of the world across the 20th century. In fact, we only really have Western Europe and the United States as a consistent data series since about 1900. 
Uh, a couple other countries come in later. So post-1970, you start to get some reliable data from Japan and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, but really, up until the present day, there simply isn't much to go by. So he he has to go back in uh, his spreadsheets and backfill rough guesstimations of where all the different uh, regions of the world, uh, uh, what their capital stock looks like at that point in history across the entire 20th century. So uh, I pulled up his charts and started looking into these, and some of them are guesstimations that I guess uh, that he has a reasonable case to be making that, although he's kind of fitting uh, them into his narrative. Uh, but something stood out to me, and that is if you look at the regions of the world that turn communist at various points in the uh, 20th century, uh, he reduces the capital stock to parity with national income. In other words, he's, a, he's accepting the communist ideological assumption that private capital ownership has been eliminated. So when uh, communism sets in in the Soviet Union, in, uh, I guess, 1919, 1920 is the first uh, year that he registers on his chart, uh, he decimates the capital stock of Russia, uh, and it drops to parity uh, with national income. He's eliminated private uh, capital ownership because the Soviets claim they did that, and that lasts through the duration of the Soviet Union. He does the same thing post-World War II when the Iron Curtain sits in over uh, Eastern Europe. So from uh, 1950 through uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, there's a decimation of the capital stock. Uh, then he does the same thing in China after uh, Mao takes over in 1949 up until the liberalization of the Chinese economy in the 1990s. Again, he obliterates the capital stock. Uh, so several questions come out of this. The first one I want to ask, this is a chart that's supposed to show the innate characteristics of capitalism, a law of capitalism. So number one, why is he including communist countries, communist data sets, in source material that's supposed to demonstrate this law of capitalism. Something's simply not meshing there. Number two, even if you permit uh, this very wide assumption that we should include communist data in calculating a, uh, a, a metric for the behavior of capitalism worldwide, uh, it's very naive to accept the ideological assumption of something like the Soviet Union of a, uh, of a parity emerging between the uh, capital and national income and elimination of private capital. In particular, if we're looking at the inequality issue, because we know very clearly that the Soviet, uh, Soviet Union was one of the most uh, unequal regimes in all of human history. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, – it's pretty shocking, and it, it, what's shocking to me is that it, there's – my, my sense of people who've raised problems with the empirical claims is that you're almost regarded as being suspiciously as you must be unscientific even to raise these questions. What's been, yeah, yeah. What's been the response to your paper? So it's been interesting. Uh, I've actually gotten uh, economists across the spectrum that have found uh, some of the empirics that we've done, the empirical scrutiny, uh, to be quite valid. They think that um, uh, they've commented that the claims are are interesting and worth taking into account, and uh, expressed a hope that Piketty would uh, would actually uh, answer for them uh, and clarify his work. Um, on the other hand, there are several people that um, have 
for various reasons, already bought into um, his prescriptive analysis for you know ideological reasons. Maybe they agree with heavy taxation. Uh, maybe they agree with him on a theoretical basis. So uh, there is a bit of reluctance to dig deeper into uh, uh, the empirical analysis that he performs. Uh, he is a well-published expert in this area, and I'll, I'll give him full credit for that. Uh, it kind of goes with the territory. You assume that a, a social scientist that's working in, the, in this era area will be above the board in his uh, presentation of data. Uh, but what we find uh, when you probe a little bit deeper is there, there are very clear instances where he massaged the data, uh, so to speak. It may be because he's confirming his own biases. It may be something a little bit more uh, that he's tilting the scale in favor of his thesis. But uh, but nonetheless, there are problems, at least from a scientific perspective, um, that undercut his core data. Ned, what, what do you think the bottom line is? I know this is hard to say in terms yeah, of the implications yeah. for these empirical problems on the plausibility of his theory. Yeah, so uh, – I would say that uh, you know if you, if you take Piketty's book, it could be split up into three parts. One is kind of this this empirically based historical narrative. Two is the theory, and he goes through from from the formal model of R is greater than G to uh, to some of the more uh, descriptive uh, versions of that. And then three is the policy prescription, the tax that he wants to come in as a corrective. Uh, what it all comes down to is number two and three, both the theory's validation, uh, so our test to see if the theory is true, and then what do we do if it is true, the prescription, the, the heavy tax, are contingent upon one, that historical narrative being correct. If it turns out that his data is flawed, then the historical narrative also has some serious flaws. Uh, so. To the extent that I think we uh, have undermined at least a, a, one important part of his historical narrative, that's the U.S. example, and then also another component on this global uh, measure of uh, capital to income, uh, we have to conclude that at least a substantial part of, uh, of, of the theoretical test that's, uh, that's premised on that uh, is suspect. Now, we only have a few minutes here, but I've heard you elsewhere talk about how you became interested in this issue, and I found that really interesting. Yeah. And it also helps give people a little context about the expertise that you come to this with. So can you give us a little bit of that story about how you came to end up writing this paper? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess to introduce anyone that uh, is not familiar with my work, I'm a historian, uh, first and foremost, and I work on the 19th century United States. Um, a lot of economic issues in the 19th century United States also deal with uh, economics of slavery and the Civil War era. But uh, one of my main specializations is taxation policy in the late 19th century all the way up until the income tax amendment in 1913. Uh, and that includes uh, tracing where the federal government derived its revenue. Uh, most of it was from uh, tariffs and excise taxes before the income tax came into existence. But uh, it's, these are data sets I've been dealing with for years, uh, studied inside and out. Um, back when Piketty's book came out, and this is before it even got a, a huge wave of publicity, a uh, colleague in my department, actually several colleagues, um, had seen some early reviews about it, and they said, you know, you're a data guy. You, uh, you study the 19th century uh, economic history of the U.S., and you know the tax data. Uh, I've seen this new book that came out about it, and it, it makes uh, many claims to have enlisted data uh, to, to demonstrate this thesis. Maybe you ought to check it out. So um, I got myself a copy. I, uh, I started looking around in some of the files that he had posted online. 
And what he was showing for the United States from the period of about 1870 to 1913 simply did not match up with what I knew, uh, what I was familiar with. So one of the first charts I looked into was his history, uh, his historical assessment of revenue uh, for the United States from 1870 uh, up until the present. And I discovered in his chart um, he actually didn't have good data for the U.S. from 1870 to 1902. Um, and rather, and this is one of the more suspicious things he did, he went and backfilled it by essentially making it up. Uh, so he inserted in numbers, and he just uh, pivots an average around them. So from 1870 to 1902, uh, rather than actually looking at the available uh, public records that I was familiar with, uh, he is making up numbers and inserting them in there to bring it into parallel with some of his European charts. This got me asking the question, uh, did he do this elsewhere? And as the book became uh, more publicly cited and uh, gained a, quite a bit of momentum in the mainstream press, I started uh, looking at some of his other charts and found, yes, indeed, there are similar instances of data massaging uh, that uh, really made me suspicious of some of his underlying core claims. And the paper essentially emerged from there. How can people find out more about your work? Yeah, so uh, I have a blog at uh, philmagnus.com. That's P-H-I-L-M-A-G-N-E-S-S dot com. And I have both a running series on, on some of the other data issues in Piketty, uh, but as well uh, also my, uh, my general historical blogging on uh, the United States in particular, uh, but economic history and economic trends. My guest today has been Philip Magnus. Phil, thanks again for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. So you may have noticed that this is the first podcast we've had in a few weeks. Basically, I've been spending all my time working on uh, my main project right now, which is a book on inequality along with ARI's president, Yaron Brook. And, uh, that's been taking up quite a big chunk of time, and unfortunately, I have not been able to keep the interviews coming at the pace that I'd like. Uh, I'd like to say that we're going to get back on track next week. Unfortunately, I think it's probably going to be off and on for a little bit, but you can rest assured that the podcast is not going to disappear and that once we turn from writing the book to promoting these ideas, we're going to get back on our regularly scheduled program and make sure that every week, you get the best in the debate over the welfare state, inequality, and free markets. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.